0: BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm
1: Kathy with a C. And this is Season 2 of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Toms River, New Jersey. Originally known as Dover Township, it was created in 1767 when New Jersey's royal governor, William Franklin, son of Benjamin Franklin, signed the charter. Now with almost 100,000 residents, Dover Township did not become Toms River Township until a voter-approved name change in 2006. At the end of the Revolutionary War, Tom's River was notably the scene of a battle that happened after a truce had been declared in the war. This led to a delay in peace talks taking place in Paris. Among the British loyalists taking part in the attack was William Franklin, who remained loyal to Great Britain throughout the war. After the war officially ended, Tom's River went on to become a center for shipbuilding, whaling, fishing, and iron and lumber production. Located along the Jersey shoreline, today Toms River is a family-friendly community with the motto, Great Places, Familiar Faces. And in the late 2000s, it was ranked among the safest places to live in the United States. But in 1984, Toms River was in the news when one man's actions were the antithesis of family-friendly. Residents did not realize the truth until a best-selling true crime novelist arrived at their doorstep.
2: In early September 1984, Robert and Maria Marshall were on their way home to Tom's River after spending the evening in Atlantic City. They would occasionally drive the 50 miles to indulge in one of their favorite pastimes, blackjack. On this night, they went to Harris Resort and Casino for a dinner reservation at 8.30 before hitting the tables. Luck was a lady that night because they left the casino just after midnight with $2,000 in their pockets. 44-year-old Robert and 42-year-old Maria had been married for 20 years and were high school sweethearts. Robert operated a successful insurance and estate planning business and was an active member of the Toms River community, serving as chair of the Ocean County United Way campaign. Maria was a stay-at-home mom and a socialite, and the pair had three children, Robbie, Chris, and John. The Marshall family appeared to be living the American dream. Robert and Maria were about 10 miles from Tom's River when Robert had to pull over because he thought they had a flat tire. Since Maria was sleeping, he pulled into a picnic area along the Garden State Parkway because he thought it would be a safer place to change the tire. The last thing Robert remembered was leaning into the trunk to pull out the spare. When he awoke, he staggered to his feet to ask his wife what happened, and to his horror, He discovered that Maria was slumped over in her seat and there was blood everywhere. Robert flagged down a passing motorist on the parkway who contacted state police. When emergency responders arrived at the scene around 1 a.m., they discovered Maria lying face down across the front seat, both arms under her and her head near the steering wheel. One of the troopers checked for a pulse but didn't find one. Ocean County's medical examiner, Dr. Walter Corrigan, was called to the scene and pronounced Maria Marshall deceased.
1: Robert briefly talked to detectives before being taken to the hospital for injuries to his head. He told them that he thought he saw an unknown vehicle following them as he pulled into the picnic area. He said he and Maria had been at Harrah's in Atlantic City and won $2,000 playing blackjack, which had been in his pocket and Maria had $500 in her wallet. But the money had disappeared from Robert's pocket while he was unconscious, and Maria's wallet wasn't found when police searched their car. It appeared that someone may have seen the couple cashing out and followed them from the casino. Robert was transported to the hospital and was given stitches for lacerations to his head before he was released. An autopsy later that afternoon revealed that Maria died from gunshot wounds to her lungs and aorta. Police spent that day combing the perimeter around the picnic area in the Parkway Median where the Marshal's car was parked. Now, Kath, I know you've been on the East Coast before. You haven't really spent a ton of time there. But when I lived in D.C., one of my closest friends lived up in Morristown, New Jersey. So you would take the Garden State Parkway once you got into New Jersey. In California and a lot of other states, when you get off to go to a rest area, it's a right exit. always. You take the off-ramp, and then when you get back on, take the on-ramp into the slow lane. Correct. In New Jersey, and I'm sure there are other places, it's actually to the left. Between the lanes of cars, between the north and southbound or east or westbound lanes of cars, there is a huge median in the middle, which is where you get your gas, which is where there's fast food and where there's rest areas. So you're getting off from the fast lane. And then getting back on to the fast lane. Oh, that's kind of a trip. I never got used to it. For all the years I drove that, for as many times as I drove it, never once did I get used to it. Anyway, so I just wanted to share that with you. It was very discombobulating at first. Yeah, for sure. As police searched the wooded area surrounding the site, scuba divers from the state police technical emergency and mission specialist squad searched a nearby stream in case the weapon used to kill Maria had been dumped there. And Kath, I don't know if sometimes it was a higher stream, but at this point, they said the stream was only about four feet. However, they still used the scuba divers because they needed people to get in and kind of look under the rocks and things like that. Trash bins at a fast food restaurant a few miles north were also searched, but nothing was found.
2: The site where the attack took place and the area where the Marshal's 1981 yellow Cadillac was found was taped off. There was a large pool of blood on the ground at the rear of the car where Robert was struck on the head and knocked unconscious. As part of their investigation, detectives went to the Marshal's home at 5 a.m., which was four hours after the police were summoned to the scene. By this time, Robert had been released from the hospital, and police wanted to get a clearer description of the events that took place that evening. Robert told officers that when he regained consciousness, he found his wife lying motionless on the front seat. He got into the car and tried to hold her and revive her. Maria's back was bloody, and when Robert realized she had been shot, he went onto the parkway and attempted to flag down cars to get help. A white station wagon with five occupants stopped to talk to Robert before driving off to contact police. Police officers at the scene found Robert's empty wallet on the ground near the passenger side rear door. The right rear tire was flat and had a one-inch cut on the upper side wall. Officers noticed the blood on the ground and found two shell casings, one lodged in the crease of the front passenger seat and the other between the drivers and the passenger seat. Officers noted that Maria Marshall was wearing jewelry, including a diamond engagement ring and wedding band, a pearl ring, a gold color watch, a gold necklace, and two gold bracelets. However, her purse and wallet were missing.
1: The Marshall family was well known. They lived in an affluent neighborhood, and their 3,000 square foot house was set on a large lot and had an in ground pool. They were also members of the Toms River Country Club, where Maria frequently played tennis and their sons were competitive swimmers. The day after Maria Marshall was killed, friends, neighbors, and acquaintances were heartbroken. They described her as an outgoing, beautiful woman who was well-known and well-liked. When this tragedy happened, their oldest son, Robbie, was a 19-year-old student at Villanova University. 18-year-old Chris had just started as a college freshman at Lehigh University, and John, who was 13, was in the eighth grade. Two days after Maria was killed, a memorial mass was held at St. Joseph's Roman Catholic Church in Toms River. The next day, the Marshall family offered a $10,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of her murderer. On September 21, 1984, two weeks after Maria's death, Detective Mahoney and Investigator Woodfield of the Ocean County Prosecutor's Office telephoned Robert and asked if they could speak to him briefly. Robert acknowledged during this interview that he and Maria had experienced marital problems and had begun seeing a marriage counselor. He attributed their problems to his accumulation of debt and to his wife's suspicions that he had been unfaithful. But he denied that he had been cheating on his wife and denied any involvement in her murder. Detective Mahoney told Robert that certain names had come to their attention in the course of the investigation and asked if he knew a James Davis from Shreveport, Louisiana. Robert ended the conversation.
2: Three weeks after Maria died, an Associated Press article in the Daily Journal said that a man named Robert Cumber from Louisiana was indicted by an Ocean County grand jury with conspiring to commit the September 7th murder of Maria Marshall. He was being held on $1.5 million in bail. Investigators were still looking for two other men in Louisiana believed to be connected to Maria's murder, who were reputed members of an organized crime ring. The same day that Cumber was indicted, police in Toms River announced that Robert Marshall had been taken to a local hospital after ingesting several dozen depressants or tranquilizer pills. Robert was taken to a hospital for observation, but he left against medical advice. The next day, he was taken to a Pennsylvania psychiatric hospital. In an article in the press of Atlantic City by Rob Polner on October 2nd, 1984, almost a month after Maria was killed, Russell Collins, a private investigator hired by Robert, acknowledged that Maria was insured for $1.5 million when she was killed. This was mostly the result of a family insurance package obtained through her husband, who happened to be the insurance salesman. One of the policies was signed on her behalf by her husband, but Robert wrote to the insurance carrier clarifying that he signed his wife's name to the policy and indicated that it was done with her approval.
1: Obviously that wouldn't work nowadays, but I'm surprised even in 84 that would have worked. I know I agree, but why is
2: this guy who was hired by Robert Talking about Robert's wife's insurance.
1: I had the same question. One, why did he hire an investigator? Right. Who was then speaking on his behalf? But I have no idea. Okay, you didn't see it anywhere. I did not see it anywhere, and I looked. Yeah.
2: No, I just was wondering what I missed. (laughs) An article on October fourteenth, nineteen eighty four, announced that Louisiana law enforcement arrested two additional suspects in Maria's death. Those suspects were Billy Wayne McKinnon and James Davis. And these were the two guys, calf, that law enforcement had asked Robert about before he shut down their interview. Billy Wayne McKinnon was a former sheriff's deputy from Caddo Parish who left the department after being convicted of stealing items from an accident scene, and he had to serve a year in jail for that. And James Davis was a self-employed steel worker. Both men were arrested on a New Jersey warrant charging them with conspiracy to commit murder.
1: Just two months later... And four and a half months after Maria was killed, on December 19th, 1984, police announced they arrested the two remaining suspects in her murder. Larry Thompson of Louisiana was arrested on charges that he shot Maria for a price. The second suspect was her husband, Robert Marshall, and he was arrested on a charge of hiring a hitman to kill his wife and with being an accomplice in the murder. Now, Kath, as you can imagine, This is December 19th. We are six days before Christmas. The department drew a lot of flack for arresting him on the 19th because he had three boys and they were facing their very first Christmas without their mom, with whom all three boys were very close. So now not only are they facing Christmas without their mom, but they're now also facing the same Christmas without their dad.
2: Of course, you have compassion for her children. But if he's a murderer, he's a murderer. Right. You know, I mean, like he's got to be arrested.
1: Assistant prosecutor Kevin Kelly said his office intended to seek the death penalty for Larry Thompson for being the shooter and Robert Marshall for being the one to set this whole thing in motion. At Robert Marshall's arraignment the next day, the two oldest Marshall boys, Robbie and Chris, sat in the last row of the courthouse. As their dad was let out of the courtroom, they called out, Dad, Dad. Robert responded, Hang in there, guys, and flashed the victory sign as he walked out. He was ordered held without bail. Billy McKinnon, the former deputy sheriff, pleaded guilty to a charge of conspiracy to commit murder several months after his arrest. As part of the deal, the state would cap any prison term McKinnon might receive to a flat five years with parole eligibility in exchange for his cooperation and testimony at trial. And before Robert Marshall's trial even began, a judge granted a defense motion to move the trial an hour south, from Ocean County to Atlantic County, due to the immense volume of pretrial publicity. That's kind of funny because it's one hour away. Exactly. And it's where some of this is alleged to have started. Exactly. You know,
2: they're hoping for like some like mob wives to be on the (laughs) jury. (laughs) Let's go to Atlantic City, why don't we? Exactly. (laughs) Trial began on January 27th, 1986. Robert Marshall was tried together with Larry Thompson, the man who was charged as the person who actually fired the gun that killed Maria. Sitting directly behind Robert on the first day of trial were his three sons. So it turns out that even though the police kept saying Robert Marshall was not a suspect, he in fact was, because rumors began swirling immediately after Maria's death that Robert was somehow involved. Her friends reported to police that Robert either killed his wife or hired someone to do it because he found out that she hired a lawyer to investigate whether or not he was having an affair.
1: And Kath, authorities paid very close attention to these rumors. And in fact, the prosecutor's office investigators found Robert's alleged paramour late in the afternoon on the day that Maria Marshall was killed. Her name is Saran Kraushar funny story. (laughs) (laughs) As some of you know, I do speak some German. And most people's last names have an etymology of whether it's your job, a station in life, or a distinctive feature. So I'm laughing because in Germany, it seems to be they're even more descriptive because I'm reading this and Kraushaar are two separate German words. One means frizzy and the other means hair. (laughs) I saw that it, it's a married name, and she didn't have frizzy hair. But somewhere in her husband's history, they Somebody did had frizzy hair enough so that that's the last name they gave them. That's crazy. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so Miss Frizzy Hair went to the prosecutor's office with an attorney for an interview on the day Maria was murdered. She admitted everything about their affair and agreed to testify at Robert's trial. Sarah Ann, who was also married, testified that she and Robert began seeing each other in June of 1983, 15 months before Maria was killed. She told the jury that Robert knew that his wife suspected their relationship because Maria had discovered records of phone calls made to a high school where Sarah Ann was employed. Sarah Ann told the jury that she and Robert had made plans to live together and were looking for a house to rent. She also testified that Robert was deep in debt from gambling. He apparently had over $300,000 in personal debt. Sarah Ann testified that it was after the affair started with Robert that he bought seven insurance policies worth $1.5 million in his wife's name. According to her testimony, Robert said to her, I wish Maria weren't around. Do you know anyone who could take care of that? Sarah Ann testified that she responded to this question by identifying an individual who had been in trouble with the law. But she also told Robert she would never be involved with him if he could do anything like that to his wife.
1: I believe only one of those statements is true.
2: (laughs) Totally agree. Here's who you use, but don't do it. (laughs) Exactly. I swear,
1: Mr. Prosecutor, that's exactly what I said. (laughs) So Kath, remember how police were called due to Robert's suicide attempt? The call took police to the Best Western Motel. So let's go back a few weeks and here's what happened. When Sarah Ann Frizzy Hair.
2: (laughs) Now she's Frizzy Hair Big Mouth because she talked.
1: (laughs) When Sarah Ann talked to the police and told them all about their affair and all these plans that they had made and what have you. She also told police that the Best Western Motel was where she and Robert would spend time together several days a week. Police assumed that if Robert was meeting with anybody who he might be making deals with or what have you, it might be at that Best Western Motel because it was a place he was comfortable with. They had reached out to the motel management and said, hey, if he comes and checks in, please let us know. So on the day of the suicide attempt, when Robert checked in, motel management called the police around four o'clock in the afternoon and said, your boy's here. So prosecutor's office investigators scurried on over to the motel and one of them took a room right next to Robert's. He propped the door open and just kind of hung out in the breezeway. He wanted to see what Robert was doing. He wanted to see, is anybody coming to his room? Is he going anywhere, what have you? And about 10 o'clock that night, that was when the first movement was made, and Robert left his room and went down to a vending machine and got a soda and went back to his room. And then came out about an hour later, and this investigator sees Robert go down to the motel office. Robert comes back about 15 minutes later, Goes into his room and closes the door. Well, the investigator's interest is piqued, so now he goes down to the motel office and says, "Hey, why was he here? What was he talking about? What did he ask you to do?" And the clerk said, "Oh, he put these two envelopes in our outgoing mail." The investigator sees the envelopes. One was addressed to his three sons, and the other was addressed to a man named Joseph Doherty, who was Robert's brother-in-law. He was married to Robert's sister, and he also happened to be an attorney. When the agent. Picked up this envelope, he said it was very clear that there were cassette tapes inside. So now they're a little concerned about Robert. They don't open these envelopes. They don't have a search warrant. They don't have the right to do any of that, but you're kind of getting a hint of what might be going on. And so that's when he and other investigators went to the room. They first tried calling Robert and he didn't answer. One of the investigators standing next to the door could hear it ringing. So somebody was there. They thought they heard movement, but when he wasn't responding to the phone or knocking on the door, they went down and got the pass key from the clerk and went and opened the door. And inside, they found Robert basically sprawled on the bed, unconscious. There's pill bottles that are empty that are on the bed. They think he might have tried to commit suicide. But they shake him, right? They want to see if they can wake him up. And he wakes up right away. And they're like, what just happened here? And he admitted that he was going to try to kill himself. So he had taken these pills. They were, I guess, powerful sleep aids, crushed them up and mixed them with the soda that he'd gotten at the vending machine. But before he could take this potion, he fell asleep. (laughs) (laughs) I can't imagine that you'd be in like such a relaxed state doing that, that you'd be like, and we're not making fun of suicide at all, at all, at all. It's horrible. I can't imagine what state you're in to have that happen. I don't think it's a state which you're so relaxed you can go to sleep. Right. (laughs) I I just don't. You're like, I'll just do this plan tomorrow. Exactly. I'm just going to take a little nappy. A little nappy nap. Yeah. A little just, nappy. Just get a little quick little nap. Anyway, so that's what all of this was about. But of course, they're still going to take him to the hospital. And then he checked into the psychiatric hospital because he was... Suicidal. Correct. He was having these thoughts. Eventually, police did get a warrant to open the envelope to Joseph Doherty. They did not ask for a warrant to open the envelope to the kids. What? Yeah. You're kidding. No. Why? That's, they didn't ask me. You, oh, God. The, I would have advised. You, the investigators didn't call you? No. And even though I couldn't have done anything in 1984, right. they still should have been like, one day, she'll pass the baby one bar. Day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that day's not here yet, and it won't ever be here, but.
2: <laughs> oh, my gosh. Bonjour. Parlez-vous français? Me neither, (laughs) despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you.
1: As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered.
2: And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation.
1: They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app.
2: Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today.
0: BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only, Virginia only. New customer offer, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.
1: If you're like Kathy and I and you enjoy a nice glass of wine, but you're not a connoisseur, let Dracaena Wines be your guide. Dracina is the
2: creation of Lori and Michael, a husband and wife team who both have science backgrounds. Michael is a food chemist and Lori was a microbiologist. So these two nerds did the hard work for us.
1: (laughs) And we mean that in the most complimentary way. Most complimentary way.
2: (laughs) My husband and I actually met Lori in Passer Robles. She was phenomenal and introduced me to her Cabernet Franc, which is to die for.
1: They actually specialize in Cabernet Franc, Rosé and Chenin Blanc. And for the last 10 years, every vintage of their wines has received a 90 plus rating from wine enthusiasts.
2: That's no surprise. It's so good. The name Dracaena is the genus name of the Draco tree and Draco was the name of their beloved wine So all you dog lovers out there got to buy their wine.
1: (laughs) Because they donate to dog charities.
2: And you will get 10% off if you use the code killer. And they have a wine club that's called the Chalk Club which I love. That's named after their dog named Vegas.
1: Right. Their second Weimaraner. Exactly. And that's because in Vegas, if you're betting chalk, you are betting on all the favorites. And they are taking the gamble that once you taste their wine, like Kathy with the sea did, they will become one of your favorites.
2: Not only are their wines delicious, they're reasonably priced. So to make a purchase, go to dracenawines.com. D-R-A-C-A-E-N-A wines.com.
1: And on this site, there's a link to their weekly podcast and weekly blog posts. And you'll also find links to all of their socials. Hey,
2: who needs to learn to drive? Seriously, who needs to learn to drive?
1: (laughs) Or which friend of yours needs to learn to drive so they'll stop using you as their personal rideshare service? But without the
2: tips. (laughs) (laughs) If you live in the Southern California counties of Los Angeles and Orange, Premium Driving School can help. Their certified instructors will help you pass your permit test, learn how to drive and get your license. And you'll be learning in a late model Mini
1: Cooper. So that's fun. That's the best part. Premium Driving School offers a number of packages, including behind the wheel driving lesson packages for teens and adults and refresher driving skills lessons for mature and senior drivers.
2: Maybe I should have Dick and Laura go there.
1: Those are (laughs) Kathy's parents, and I think you're actually right.
2: (laughs) They could use it.
1: (laughs) Lessons are available seven days a week and are based on each person's individual skill and ability level.
2: Premium Driving School is here to help you learn how to drive and become a confident and safe driver, and it has a five-star Google rating. For more information, go to their website, learntodrivetoday.com. Learn the number two,
1: drivetoday.com. And with the code KILLERD, they'll give you a 10% discount on your lessons. During the prosecution's case, because they had the search warrants to listen to the cassette tapes that were in the envelope addressed to Joseph Doherty, the prosecution played it for the jury. On this tape, Robert discussed his relationship with Sarah Ann Frizzyhair. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Sarah Ann. (laughs) I know. I'm sure you're a lovely person. His intention to leave Maria within a month, his spiral of debt that he was somehow determined to pay off, but just couldn't seem to do, and that he hired Billy Wayne McKinnon to investigate Maria. And I don't think there were quotes around that word, even though I said it like there was. Right. <laughs> also on the tape, Robert instructed Mr. Doherty with respect to how to handle various business, financial, and personal matters. Robert expressed his intention to take his own life because he expected to be indicted and convicted for his wife's murder, even though he was innocent. It also came out where this Cajun connection came from, how authorities knew to look to Louisiana. To find these alleged co-conspirators.
2: I like, by the way, how you call it a Cajun connection. I bet you (laughs) anything all the journalists back then did.
1: It turned out that authorities figuring out this connection was as simple as looking at the phone bills from Robert's office and home. When police were able to track the numbers, the bills showed many calls from Robert to Louisiana, particularly a hardware store in Caddo Parish and the residence of Robert Cumber, who it turns out was an employee of that hardware store he was calling. When police asked Robert about these calls in one of their initial interviews, Robert told them he met Cumber at a party in May of 1984, four months before his wife's death. Robert told them that at the party, the pair discussed insurance and other financial instruments, as one would, and he also told detectives he mentioned to Cumber that he was seeking an out-of-town investigator to track down some casino winnings he'd given to his wife, but she could never account for what she spent them on. Robert claimed that he was hesitant to hire an investigator locally as he believed that the news would travel fast in the small town of Toms River.
2: Billy Wayne McKinnon, the former Louisiana Sheriff's deputy who copped a plea for leniency, was the prosecution's key witness. The plea agreement was introduced into evidence and read to the jury. As part of the agreement, the state also agreed to relocate his family to a safe location for their protection and to support their entry into the witness protection program. McKinnon testified that he knew Robert Cumber, and three months before Maria's death in June of 1984, Robert asked him to stop by his work and telephone Robert Marshall. Cumber told McKinnon that Robert was an acquaintance who needed an investigator. So basically, Kath, Robert had met Cumber at this party. Cumber's like, oh, I know who could be your investigator, this guy McKinnon. A disgraced
1: former deputy. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Who else could you possibly want? (laughs) He stole from crime scenes, but he won't steal from you.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. During this phone call, Robert says to McKinnon, can you meet me in Atlantic City and make arrangements to conduct an investigation on my wife? McKinnon testified that he actually gave Robert a fake name and asked for an advance of $5,000 for expenses before traveling to Atlantic City.
1: Now, Kath, the fake name that McKinnon gave was James Davis. If you'll recall, of the first people who were arrested, it was Cumber McKinnon and Davis. Davis was actually just a patsy in this whole thing. It was a name that McKinnon was using. He knew the guy from the local area. So he actually was never tried on any charges. He got that dismissed.
2: Robert agreed to wire the money and said he would pay an additional $2,500 if McKinnon would meet him on June 18th at Harris Casino. Now, this was about 10 weeks before Maria was killed. On June 18th, McKinnon went to Atlantic City as requested and told the jury that when Robert met him in his room, Robert began talking about investigating Maria. But after about 15 or 20 minutes, he eventually said, you know what? I want her killed. Done away with. Robert then gave McKinnon several suggestions about where he could kill his wife. It turned out Robert wanted Maria killed the night McKinnon met with him in Atlantic City. But McKinnon said, no, no, I am not going to personally kill your wife, but I will find somebody else who can do it. According to McKinnon, after he asked Robert for $100,000 for the job, Robert whittled him down to $65,000. Such a good negotiator. I know, seriously. After returning to Louisiana, McKinnon continued to receive numerous messages from Robert complaining that he had been paid for his work, but had not completed it. About a month later... McKinnon returned to Atlantic City with a friend, but did not attempt to kill Maria Marshall. McKinnon told the jury that Robert even pressed him to do it during the family's upcoming vacation in Michigan, but McKinnon refused. Now, Kath, at this point, were the kids in the courtroom still?
1: Yes. What a
2: nightmare. I can't
1: imagine that. I really
2: can't. But of course they're sitting there going, oh, this guy's a liar.
1: Right. And their dad kept telling them that he would turn around and say, don't listen to this guy. He's lying. Robert was very communicative with his sons during this trial. So when somebody like McKinnon said something, he'd turn around to his sons and say, don't believe him. He's lying. And he would also hold up signs to his sons, whether it was just one or three of them who were there that said, I love you and and things like that. It was almost like he was holding court, like this was his domain, not the judge's. The testimony continued with McKinnon telling the jury that several weeks later, he received a phone call from Robert Marshall's co-defendant, Larry Thompson. He, of course, was indicted for being the shooter. Even though McKinnon didn't know Thompson, the night he received this phone call, he met with him in person. Thompson told him that some people out of Dallas had offered him $75,000 to kill McKinnon. And it makes sense why there was that area in the plea agreement that agreed to support entry into witness protection for McKinnon and his family. Here's the funny thing.
2: McKinnon lies to Robert about his name, takes a bunch of money from him and doesn't kill Maria. Then he gets a call from a total stranger who says, oh, by the way, I was offered $75,000 to kill you.
1: By some random people in Dallas who I'm not mentioning. That's terrifying. I agree. How do you track him down? Terrifying. Exactly. It's probably why he met him that same night. He was like, how do you know me? How do you know anything about this? Right. Thompson essentially said, you didn't do the job you were supposed to do for Marshall. They want me to kill you, but let's go now. I'll go with you. I'll be the shooter. Let's just get it taken care of. We're done. McKinnon said that he and Thompson left for New Jersey on September 4th or 5th and arrived in Atlantic City early on the morning of September 6th.
2: That's weird. Could he not remember, like, how long the car
1: ride was? Well, maybe it was just a really stressful situation because he thought he was going to be killed. Maybe he
2: felt like he was in the car for 40 hours. I don't know.
1: If you're going to somewhere with a known killer and you're stopping overnight at a place or not... You'd remember. (laughs) And I also think that I'd be afraid the entire time and not sleep. For sure. Yeah, (laughs) totally. McKinnon said he and Robert Marshall met at 1130 that morning and drove around on the Garden State Parkway to check out possible sites for this homicide. McKinnon rejected two locations that Robert suggested, but when he was taken to the picnic area, he agreed with Robert that it could be done there. McKinnon testified that he dropped Thompson off at this picnic area between 12 and 12:30 a.m. He then drove back to a toll area and waited for the marshals to drive by. A few minutes after he saw them pass by, he went to the picnic area. When he got there, he saw the marshal's car parked with the passenger door open and Robert lying on the ground at the rear of the car. McKinnon testified that he saw Thompson squat down and then heard air hissing out of the tire. So, of course, he was the one then who stabbed the tire to mm-hmm. make it flat. Then they dipped. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
2: McKinnon testified that he saw Thompson with Maria Marshall's wallet and a bunch of cash, and on their way back to Atlantic City, Thompson handed McKinnon three or $400. He also told the jury that Thompson threw the murder weapon into a large body of water that they passed on the parkway, but was uncertain where Thompson had disposed of the knife and rubber gloves. As you would expect, McKinnon was subjected to extensive cross-examination, and Robert Marshall's defense counsel emphasized the particularly generous terms of the plea bargain, which would allow McKinnon to be paroled soon after the completion of the trial. Thompson's defense counsel pressed McKinnon to concede that the prosecution would not have offered McKinnon the plea deal if McKinnon had been the shooter, obviously implying that McKinnon was lying. One important thing, Kath, that the defense attorney pointed out was that no other evidence besides McKinnon's testimony implicated Thompson in the murder. And McKinnon acknowledged that that was true. So this is huge. The defense attorney now has a lot of argument as far as the jury goes. He's going to go, this is the guy that pointed to my client as being the shooter. Are you kidding me? He's a former disgraced deputy. He's a this, he's a that. He takes money. He lies about his name, blah, 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 blah. He was the real shooter kind of thing. Robert Marshall took the stand on his own behalf. In addition, he produced four character witnesses who testified to his general reputation for honesty and integrity. All three of Robert's sons also testified. Christopher and John confirmed that when their dad telephoned them on September 27th from the Best Western Motel, now this was the night of the suicide attempt or lack thereof, that their father sounded upset and depressed. Robert's oldest son, Robbie, testified that on September 6, 1984, He was awakened at about 11.30 a.m. and left his home at noon with both parents to have lunch at the Toms River Country Club, where they stayed for about an hour. Now, this was the day that McKinnon testified he and Robert Marshall met at noon and drove around looking for murder sites on the Garden State Parkway. So obviously, there was a conflict in testimony. Robert admitted his relationship with Sarah Frizier.
1: We're sorry. (laughs) (laughs) We can't help ourselves.
2: We can't indicating that it had been their intention to leave their respective spouses, but not to live together immediately. They wanted to avoid the perception that their relationship had begun while their marriages were intact.
1: I think Robert Marshall underestimates the power of common sense and power of (laughs) gossip in a small town. That's probably true. Robert
2: also testified that Maria had been unable to account for several thousand dollars in casino winnings that he had given her, justifying the reason that he hired McKinnon to investigate his wife.
1: Robert testified that he met Robert Cumber at a party given by a neighbor in May of 1984, and during their conversation, he mentioned to Cumber that he was interested in hiring an investigator to account for some missing funds. Robert testified that he had also wanted to find out whether his wife had been having him followed and had known about his involvement with Saran. Addressing the issue of the $1.5 million in life insurance policies he took out on his wife, Robert testified that in October of 1983, this was 11 months before his wife was killed, he had prepared a capital needs analysis for himself and his wife to determine the amount of life insurance they needed so that in the event either was to die, the survivor would be provided with an adequate income. He estimated that they would both need about $1 million in insurance coverage. So Kath, now that we're at the end of Robert's testimony, I just had to share something that came up in a number of different articles that I read. It was referred to as a well-remembered exchange between prosecutor Kevin Kelly and Robert Marshall. During the trial, Marshall wore his wedding ring and, as we mentioned, would hold up cardboard signs during the trial with the words, I love you, to his heartbroken sons who were sitting in the courtroom. Prosecutor Kelly noticed the ring on Robert's finger and began to hammer at him. He asked him if he still loved Maria. Robert said yes. Asked him a number of different things. Do you miss her? Do you wish she was still here? Yes, yes, yes. Then Kelly dropped the bomb. He asked Robert, if you loved your wife so much, why are her ashes still sitting in a box in a Tom's River funeral home? Whoa. And then Prosecutor Kelly finished with, and for that, there's a place in hell for you. Oh, my God. Mic drop. Boom. Dang. I know. Larry Thompson's defense counsel brought his family and friends to the stand who all testified that they saw Thompson in Louisiana on the day of the murder. Thompson also testified on his own behalf, denying any involvement in the death of Maria Marshall. He maintained that he was at home in Louisiana when the murder occurred and McKinnon was completely lying about him. He denied having had any conversation with McKinnon about people in Dallas putting out a contract on him and denied traveling to Atlantic City with McKinnon. He testified that he did know McKinnon and had actually purchased a car from him on September 10th, three days after Maria's murder. Thompson's wife also testified in her husband's defense, and her testimony about Thompson's activities from September 6th to September 9th was the same as his. Shocking. I'm, I really that you that knocked me over with a feather. <laughs> He was in Louisiana and he could not have killed Maria Marshall.
2: After several hours of deliberation on March 5, 1986, the jury found Robert Marshall guilty of conspiracy to commit murder and of purposefully or knowingly causing the death of Maria Marshall by a payment of a sum of money. The jury acquitted Larry Thompson of all charges.
1: So, Kathy, we did a little teaser with the Today's Destination of a True Crime Novelist. Joe McGinnis was the author who wrote the book about Green Beret, Dr. Jeffrey McDonald, who was accused of killing his wife and daughters, wow, 40 years ago, 50 years ago? Something like that. McGinnis was actually at Robert Marshall's trial every single day, taking notes, talking to people who were in the courtroom, talking to people outside of the courtroom. And sure enough, a few years later, a book comes out called Blind Faith, and it was about this trial.
2: And because this was at a time when it was newspapers who disseminated most of the information in a piecemeal fashion, this book held so much information. So people who read it understood the full spectrum of everything that happened.
1: And there was a movie made about this. Was it a Beyond a TS? It was a Beyond a TS. And for those of you who don't know what that is, you're slacking on your podcast of ours. Go back, start listening, and then you'll know.
2: At the inception of the sentencing phase for Robert Marshall, his defense attorney stated that it was Robert's decision, with which his attorney concurred, to call no witnesses whatsoever. The state offered no additional evidence, relying on the record that had been established during the guilt phase of the case. Now, Calf, this means that although the defense had an opportunity to introduce mitigating circumstances because the prosecution was seeking the death penalty, He did not do so. That's a really big deal. Following the jury's recommendation, the trial court sentenced Robert Marshall to death. In April 2004, 18 years after he was sentenced to death, the U.S. District Court ruled that Robert received ineffective counsel during the penalty phase of his trial. The Third Circuit Court of Appeals supported this decision in November 2005. As a result, Robert was ordered to be resentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. Under this new sentence, Robert would become eligible for parole in December of 2014, after having served 30 years. He was New Jersey's longest-serving death row inmate until the courts overturned his sentence. Robert Cumber, who connected Robert Marshall with Billy McKinnon and passed telephone messages between the two, was originally charged with conspiracy to commit murder. Now, this was a case that was originally dismissed, but the Court of Appeal reinstated it. In an about-face, the prosecutor's office offered to allow Cumber to plead guilty to a minor charge and walk with the year he served in jail rather than going to trial. Cumber refused because he was innocent. So, Caff, he had the opportunity to take a plea and go back home, and he said, no, I'm not going to plead to something I didn't do. Cumber was convicted by a jury and sentenced to 30 years in prison without the possibility of parole. He was the first person convicted under a new law, giving accomplices the same sentence as the person who did the crime. Can you imagine? What a nightmare.
1: And Kath, I read that the trial judge wrote letters for years supporting Cumber's appeals, recommending that Cumber get released. And all of his appeals failed. Then in 2006, as one of his final acts as New Jersey's governor, Richard Cody commuted Cumber's sentence to the 20 years already served. The governor called it unconscionable and a terrible injustice that he felt needed to be righted. Billy McKinnon, who was indicted for the same offenses as Cumber, pled guilty to conspiracy to commit murder and was sentenced to five years in prison under the terms of the plea agreement. Kath, he only served one year of his sentence before he was discharged. In 2014, this is 28 years after Larry Thompson was acquitted by a jury, the then 72-year-old Thompson confessed to being the gunman who killed Maria Marshall.
2: Turns out McKinnon was telling the truth.
1: He could not be retried due to double jeopardy protections. However, when Thompson admitted the murder, he was serving a life sentence at the Louisiana State Penitentiary on unrelated murder charges. He's still there, 81 years old, His earliest parole date is October 11th, 2071. He will be 129 when he's released.
2: (laughs) Good luck, Mr. Thompson.
1: (laughs) Now, Kath, although their youngest brother, John, still believed in their father's innocence, Robbie and Chris had long since realized that their father was actually guilty. I read that for Robbie, it was when his dad went to him just a couple of months after his mom was killed and asked Robbie to lie to provide his dad with an alibi. What was the
0: lie?
1: but I'm assuming that he was implying his testimony about being with his dad at the same time Billy McKinnon said he was with his dad. Oh,
2: the testimony about them going to lunch at the country club or Correct. whatever it was.
1: When McKinnon said that they were going around to rest areas looking for an appropriate place to kill Maria Marshall. And you know, Kath, what I think is sad. I think the reason John still believed in his father's innocence was strictly a factor of his age. Yeah, what he was an age. He was grade. thirteen. Yeah. yeah. So knowing Robert Marshall would be eligible for parole in December 2014, Robbie and Chris took the proactive step of meeting with officials in the parole division in August of that same year to make their case. As you can imagine, they were shocked when their father's sentence was changed to include parole, but they wanted to do this meeting ahead of time because they were confident that their emotional appeal would be enough to keep their father in prison.
2: Do you know if their younger brother knew they were doing that?
1: I think they did. I read some articles that basically said that they were kind of estranged from him for a little while because he was so angry about what had happened with his dad. But over the last 10 years or so, they have all made an agreement to be brothers and just not talk about this one subject. They didn't want to let that be what split them apart. Yeah. Now, despite this early meeting with parole administrators, Robbie and Chris learned in early July 2015 that a preliminary two-member parole board panel already determined that Robert Marshall was entitled to a hearing before the full parole board. Chris told the Asbury Park Press that when he and Robbie found out that their father was granted a second parole hearing, they decided to stand up and defend their mom. Neither of them lived in New Jersey at the time, but they planned to go to the state parole board in person in late February 2015 and plead with the 15 members of the parole board to keep their father in prison. However, before the full board was able to meet in March, Robert Marshall died on February 21, 2015, at the Southwood State Prison from a debilitating stroke. A few days after his father's death, Middle son Chris Marshall spoke with the Asbury Park Press. He said, For the past 30 years of my life, I have lived with the reality of having a parent who is a monster. The finality of this is what took me by surprise. The emotional range is from relief to sadness and mourning. This person who is your father is gone. At the same time, there is a vindictive happiness that he's gone now. He's no longer a drain on anyone. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy the story as much as we enjoyed telling it. (laughs) (laughs) Rate us, review us, Mm -hmm. and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Only five stars are
2: allowed. Remember that.